0: Everyone's here already. Show me the seal. I had to take the longer route to avoid the Turaka spies and scouts. I'm sure he will understand. You can go now. Head into that antechamber, turn right and the bodyguards will let you in. Welcome Kapayanayaka. Finally you are here. Apologies my lord of Horsalas. I had to go round about from Lepakshi to avoid. I understand Kapaya. Musanuris are men of caution and rightly so. Say no more. Come join us at the table. So Kapaya, how did our allies from Marugalu respond to the plan? My lord, most of them have agreed. I am trying to bend the others too. I am sure sense will prevail on them soon. And they will come under your illustrious umbrella. I hope some of them don't walk in the footsteps of the traitor Nagayaganna Ganna of Urugallu who turned a mlecha for pieces of gold. Time is of essence, Kapaya. I am counting on you. Yes, my lord. will not let you down. You don't have a choice, Kapaya. Musunuris will be the first ones on the chopping block. My spies in Daulatabad have sent urgent reports about a major invasion coming down our way. The spy chief here has solid intelligence that shows in a fire nore to make 5,000 stirrups has been sent from Bellari to Daulatabad. And it can only mean one thing. Ballappa, how goes the construction of our new garrison? My lord, it should be ready by Mahanavami. Very good. We will first move against the Madurai Thurakas when they least expect it. They won't even know what hit them. And after that, we can deal with the Delhi Thurakas. I will show them both the power of my ancestor, Salas, Sword. Hello listeners, welcome to Itihasa, an Indic history podcast and you're listening to episode 15 of the season Vijay Nagar. In the last episode, we looked at the meteoric rise of the small kingdom of Kampili. How it challenged not just its bigger South Indian rivals but also the Tughlaq Sultanate. Ultimately leading to a dramatic showdown between Kampili's brave king Kampiladeva and the Tughlaqs. We saw Hoysala's Bhallala III's initial subjugation by the Tughlaqs after a surprise attack on Dwarasamudra, then his fight back during the chaos of rebellions against the Tughlaqs in the Deccan and the south. We also looked at the rise of the Madurai Sultanate, its wars with Hoysala's, and the decisive defeat of Ballala in the Battle of Kannanur after snatching a defeat from the jaws of victory. Finally, Ending with the tragic death of Veera Bharlala and total domination of the South by Tughlaqs. In this episode, we will look closely at the events that transpired from the perspective of the Hohesala ruler Veera Bhallala. I wouldn't be doing justice to this interesting character if I didn't tell his story. His valuable contributions towards the expulsion of Tughlaqs from the South have to be highlighted. Most often, this aspect is completely ignored or given a token mention in modern narratives. Without understanding the role of the last great Hoyasala, Veera Bhallala, we can never understand the origins of Vijayanagara. And most importantly, the role of Balala in laying the groundwork for the rise of the Sangama brothers cannot be understated. Let's start the story with an excerpt from the Chronicles of a famous 14th-century Moroccan traveller and a Muslim, Ibn Battuta. Quote, This was a very warlike prince, and as he happened to be in the neighbourhood of an infidel whose army amounted to 120,000 men, an attempt was made to take these Mabar districts out of the hands of the Muslims. This infidel prince, accordingly, made an attack on the town of Kian which belongs to the Mabar, and in which there were 6,000 soldiers, put them to the rout and besieged it. This was reported to the Sultan, and that the town was nearly lost. He then marched out with his forces, which amounted to 7,000, every man of whom took off his turban and hung it upon the neck of his horse, which is, in India, an intimation that they are bent upon death. They then make a charge upon the infidel king while his men were taking their midday repose and besieging Kian, and put them to the rout. The greater part of them was killed nor did one except the cavalry or those who concealed themselves in the woods escape. The Sultan was taken prisoner his wealth seized himself afterwards killed and I saw his body hanging against a wall in the town. Unquote. The infidel king that Ibn Battuta was referring to in this excerpt was the Hoysala monarch, Vira Ballala III. He is referring to the battle of Kannanur in which Hoysalas were defeated after almost winning the battle. Ballala was captured, flayed alive, and then his body was hung against the walls of the fort. As per inscriptions from the Kadur taluk, Vira Ballala was executed on the 8th September 1342 AD. And it is well recorded that Ibn Battuta was in India from 1342 to 1344 AD. So this excerpt by him can be safely considered as a first-hand witness account. And with the death of the last Hoyasala ruler, the mighty Hoyasala Empire had been extinguished after almost 395 years of rule in South India. While Veera Bhalala III was succeeded by his son Veera Bhalala IV on June 28, 1343 AD, his rule was mere ceremonial and it ended quickly, with whatever was left of Hoyasala's crumbling away. During this episode, we will try to answer important questions. Why did the Hoyasala monarch initially submit to the Tughlaqs without a fight, like we saw in the last episode? Why did Bhallala not give asylum to the Tughlaq royal fugitive Bahauddin Garshasp after Kampiladeva sent him away to Dwar Samudra for protection? And how did the Hoyasalas lay the ground for the Vijayanagara empire to burst onto the scene? So let's spend some time trying to understand Ballala's background first, which will help us decipher his motivations. And also better put in context the events that transpired after the fall of Kampili and the whole of South to the Tughlaq domination. We have to travel back in time to the Hoyasala empire in 1263 AD for a backstory. It was in this year that Veera Bharunala's grandfather and the Hoyasala monarch Veera Sumeshwara had passed away and before passing away so, Meshwara had divided the Hoyasala empire into two administrative dominions and then nominated each of his sons, Venunat and Ramnada, to rule them under the same Hoyasala imperial banner. The idea was to make it easier and efficient to govern the vast empire, but with one of the co-rulers assuming a lot more significance than the other. So, the other co ruler, while he would have full autonomous powers over his domains and subjects, he would have to accept the significant one as the imperial prime to whom he would in reality be a subordinate. This practice wasn't really new or out of the normal during that period. Even the Pandyas had a similar system. If you remember from episode 13, we saw the civil war between Sundara Pandya and Veera Pandya with their own imperial capitals. It was a result of a similar system gone wrong. We see an extreme variation of the system with the Mughals too, wherein the Mughal princes had to first rule their allotted provinces well enough and then engage in a fight to death in most cases to claim the throne. We can in fact see a similar system with even the first Vijayanagara founders Harihara 1 and Bukka 1 who were brothers and co-rulers of the initial empire with Harihara I being the prime ruler among the two. This was a very successful example of the system, when it worked that is. But in the case of the two Hoyasala brothers, Ramanatha refused to acknowledge the primacy of his brother Viranur III in the setup. The reason for this was the unequal division of the empire with the dead king Someshwara. It is important to note that the division of the empire wasn't supposed to or mandated to be equal in such a system. The division as such was based on the individual capabilities of the co-rulers. So in this case, clearly the division was more in favour of Veranar Simha III and he evidently got most of the crucial domains in addition to the capital Dwarasamudra. The stronger candidate who had a better chance of offering better defence of the empire against the enemies was given more resources and land to rule. By that rationale, dividing the empire into equal divisions would have defeated the purpose and neither of them would have been able to mount an adequate defence in case of enemies attacking it. That is assuming one of them didn't react fast enough or refused cooperation. So this unequal division of the empire led to a bone of contention between the both and a silent rebellion by Ramanada against Emperor Veranar Simmatri. And Ramanada used every opportunity to show his defiance through the act of war against the latter. Ramanada's main capital was a place called Kundani and he also had an alternative capital called Kannanur if you recollect, this is the same city where the decisive battle between Vera bahlala III and the Madurai Sultanate takes place. Ramanada's kingdom in some inscriptions is referred to as Hesara Kundani In the classic work of Epigraphica Karnataka by B. Lewis Rice, published as a series of volumes between 1894 to 1905 A.D., Rice thinks Kundani is actually the place of Kundana that's located in the modern-day Devanahalli district in Bangalore. But H. Krishna Shastri disagreed with this and instead claimed that this place was actually Kundana in Hosur district and shows the ruins of fortifications in that place as an evidence for this. Shastri's claim is much stronger due to the nature of evidence he presents versus the weaker evidence of phonetic resemblance provided by B. Louis Rice. So the conflict between both the Hoysala brothers had flayed up as early as 1260 AD, even before their father died. Ramanada had come with some forces to the main Hoysala imperial capital of Dwara Samudra to claim his rightful share of the mountains of wealth that had accumulated in the capital's imperial treasury for hundreds of years. During the next 10 years, Veera Narasimha was busy with his wars against the Yadava kingdom and its powerful ally of Irungolas. Salavatik Kamma of Yadavas was driven back by Hoysalas in 1276 AD and by 1285 AD the Irungolas were completely defeated. With some Hoyasala feudatories too creating a headache around the same time, Veera Narsimha had a lot on his hands to deal with. As per an inscription dated 1294 AD in the Srirangam temple, Veera Narsimha at some time in 1272 AD had inflicted a crushing defeat on Ramanada and ever since then the latter had been planning for a second major invasion against his brother. So in 1280 AD, Ramanada had joined hands with the Gajapatis of Orissa, belonging to the pallava ganga dynasty, to launch an attack on Veeranar Both these armies met somewhere in a place called Solur in the modern-day Tumkur district, Karnataka. In what is referred to as Battle of Solur, Ramanada and the Gajapatis combined forces, defeated Veeranar Simha a treaty was concluded in which the Hoyasala Monarch was forced to cede territory in the east of the empire to his brother Ramanada. But this peace treaty was short-lived and both the brothers clashed with each other once again in 1282 AD and 1289 AD due to Ramanada's expansionist greed. These Gajaptis will make a grand entry later in their conflicts with the Vijayanagara Empire which we will see in the future episodes. Finally in 1291 AD Veera Narsimha had died and his son Veera Bhalala ascended the Hoyasala throne. Veera Bhalala's uncle Ramanada and Ramanada's son Vishwanada now go after him by launching an attack on the Hoyasala capital in 1292 AD and once again in 1294 AD. Both of these attacks were successfully repulsed by Bhallala. In 1295 AD, Ramanada dies of an unknown chronic disease after suffering for two years and his son Vishwanada ascended the throne evidently. But Vishwanada's rule was a very short one and it ended somewhere around 1301 AD with Bhallala defeating him and becoming the sole ruler of the earlier divided Hoyasala Empire. Here, it's probably worth talking briefly about the religious conditions in the Tamil domains of the Hoyasala Empire, which was ruled by Ramanada and his son Vishwanatha. It shows some interesting dynamics between Jainism and Vaishnavism. It is said that both the father-son duo showed an intolerant attitude towards anything that wasn't Vaishnavism and most importantly engaged in suppression of Jainism. There seem to be some inscriptions from Kolar Taluk that seem to refer to a tax that was levied upon the Jains, who were also referred to condescendingly as Ajivakas, which was an epithet for heretics. The Vaishnavas of Srirangam seem to have even resented the Hoyasalas giving preferential treatment to Shaivism versus Vaishnavism. This rivalry with Shaivism seems to have been an inheritance from the Cholas, who had always exhibited a tendency for fanaticism, which was then in turn inherited from them by the Pandyas. While Bhallala was able to hold strong against his uncle Ramanada's schemings, his successor's continuous attacks and outlasted them to consolidate his position. In the long run though, Bhalala's ascension happened at a point when the Hoysala empire was on its way towards decline. The usual narrative claims that the decline of Hoysalas was due to the Islamic invasions into the south. But this is not exactly the truth. The invasions by the Islamic Sultanate were mere catalysts and not the root cause. In fact, the reason the Islamic invasions were able to give death blows to Hoysalas, Pandyas, Kakatiyas and Yadavas was more to do with their own weaknesses that they themselves exposed to the Khiljis and Tughlaqs up north. The incessant infighting rivalries and intrigues against one another led to the four kingdoms weakening each other in the long run. And this inevitably attracted the attention of the Islamic invaders who felt these kingdoms were juicy targets that were easy to conquer. So with their much revolutionary shock and awe tactics coupled with dynamic warfare the static responses of these southern kingdoms were no match to the Khiljis and Tughlaqs in the battlefield just brute-force bravery of Hindu kingdoms wasn't enough and not going to cut it. With Hoy though, like we saw earlier, the long-running low-intensity civil war in the initial stages of the 14th century, effectively diverted all of its attention and resources from the real looming threat of Islamic invasions. In spite of all the weaknesses and flaws, Balala made the best of the situation by taking up the various challenges thrown at him bravely. Balala had early on realized the problem with his grandfather Someshwara's idea of having two co rulers for an empire by dividing it into two independent domains with one significant co ruler among the two. But Balala wasn't the aggressor among the two as we saw earlier and he was wise enough to wait for the right opportunity while he consolidated his hold on the throne. This opportunity came with the death of Ramanada and Bhallala was swift enough with both the sword and political maneuvering. In 1301 AD, Bhallala in addition to his military response to weaken the Vishwanada's hold on his dominion, he played a master stroke from the perspective of the public perception. Bahlala, as a significant co-ruler, used his power and position as the monarch of the empire to issue edicts to the heads of many crucial madhas and temples in the Tamil domains of Hesarakundani, which belonged to Vishwanada. In these edicts or orders, Bahlala remitted all taxes confirming the already granted villages to them as endowments and extending the term of these holdings. Few of these temple districts to which Bhallala extended these benefits were Murasanadu, modern-day Kolar district, and Elaypaka, Tamil version of modern-day Yelanka in Bangalore. With this PR masterstroke, Bhallala had effectively weakened the hold of the rival uncle-son duos on their own domains and weaned away the public support in his own favor. Also, by being generous with these temple and mata endowments to the Brahmins, Barlala bought legitimacy in the eyes of a powerful community of the society. As a newly inaugurated monarch, this legitimacy was crucial obviously. We saw in the previous episodes on how Alauddin Khilji inaugurated the Islamic onslaught of the Deccan and South in the end of the 13th century. And by 1306 AD, the Yadava kingdom was effectively reduced to the status of a weak, submissive vassal. With the downfall of Yadavas, the Hoyasalas in their quest to take full advantage of their rival's weakness, Bhallala started extending the Hoyasala frontiers into Yadava territory and absorbed them into his. And this is where we see Bhallala committed strategic blunder and which reveals how short-sighted he was when it came to the looming Islamic threat that was right around the corner. It is important to note that the Yadavas too, even after they turned vassals of Khiljis, they still kept their rivalry with Hoysalas burning, instead of trying to patch up their differences and looking at the big picture. Bahlala's expansionism continued up until 1311 AD aggressively and yet successfully added more territories to the Hoyasala domains. If you remember from the past episode, while Bhallala was busy with his invasion of the Pandya territory in Mabar, Malik Kafur, with the help of Yadava king Ramadeva, launched a surprise attack on Dwarasamudra. Dwarasamudra's modern-day name is Halabidu. Bhallala had to abort his Pandya invasion and had to rush back to his capital. And we also saw how Bhallala had refused his noble suggestion to fight it out with the Khilji army and took the risk of losing the royal prestige by submitting to Khiljis without putting up resistance to save his kingdom finally. Here I have to tell my listeners that the previous account of Bhallala's weak submission to Khiljis was actually a version of Amir Khusro, the 14th century singer, scholar and chronicler. This version had supposedly been picked up by many scholars like K and Shastri too in the past and has successfully contaminated many historical books on this. And this is why it's so important to cross-check these sources against each other. In the 1949 published historical theses on Hoysala Empire, Called the Hoesala Wamsa by William Coelho, we actually see a different account that is backed up by inscriptions from solid sources like Epigraphica Karnataka and Mysore archaeological reports. In his work, William Coelho shows that Bhallala had done anything but submit without a fight, like Amir Khosro had so colorfully portrayed with such fierce contempt which was without a shadow of doubt coloured by his own religious bias against the Hindu infidels. First, let's look at an excerpt from Amir Khusro's account on Bhallalā's submission. Quote, Bilal Deo, the sun worshipper, seeing the splendour of sword of Islam over his head, bowing down his head, descended from his fortress It came before the shadow of the god, and trembling and heartless, prostrated himself on the earth and rubbed the forehead of subjection on the ground. So from this excerpt of Khosrow's account, one is led to believe that the mighty Hoyasala monarch, who was till 1311 AD on an aggressive run of successful expeditions against his powerful rivals, had suddenly turned into a meek cat on the first sight of the Khiljis. Thankfully, we have Hoysala inscriptions as evidence to counter this insidious propaganda by Khusro. The Hoysala epigraphical evidence from Epigraphica Karnataka, Volume 5, instead says this quote, The Turks having marched against Dwarasamudra by Cheya Nayaka, son of Nadegore Ma Cheya Nayaka of Duddha, displaying bravery. That was admired by both the armies had fallen. And then we also have another epigraphical evidence from Mysore archaeological reports that says this A minister of Bhalala by the name of Saluva Kattari styled himself the destroyer of the Turaka army. And we also have yet another epigraphical evidence from Epigraphica Karnataka Volume 11 that says this Quote He then returned to fetch his treasures and was engaged all night in taking them out and the next day brought them before the royal canopy and made them over the king's treasurer Kafur remained in the city for 12 days which is 4 months distance from Delhi and sent the captured elephants and horses to that capital Unquote So, from the above sources, it's clear that Bhallala did indeed give a fight to the Khilji army before finally being defeated and Dwarasamudra being sacked due to inadequate time to prepare his defences as he was busy with the Pandya invasion prior. It's also clear that he indeed did submit in the end to Alauddin Khilji's royal canopy and became his vassal. While inscriptions do not show Bharlala being taken to Delhi to cement a submission to Alauddin Khilji we do have as per historian Kishori Saran Lal and Sir Richard Temple was a 19th century British administrator and politician Bharlala's visit to Delhi is corroborated by an inscription which states that the Hoysala king returned from Delhi on 6th May of 1313 AD It is said that Alauddin Khilji had allowed Bhallala to return to his kingdom after keeping his son as a political hostage in Delhi to make sure Bhallala doesn't rebel later. Also the Khiljis believed that Bhallala was a strong and well respected ruler in the south who would be able to keep the now Khilji territories under better control than the Khiljis' provincial governors themselves. If you remember from previous episodes, this was the same strategy that Alauddin Khilji employed even with the Yadava, Ramadeva of Devagiri. Khilji's focus was primarily on milking his new conquests in the form of annual tributes from his vassals instead of territorial holdings. In 1310 AD, Bhallala moved his capital from Dwarasamudra to Belur and he retired to Tondanur near Srirangapatna but later inscriptions show that he had eventually moved his capital to Arunasamudra, which is also now known as Tiruvannamalai. In 1312 AD Malik as we saw in previous episode once again marched against Sangama of Devagiri after the death of Ramadeva following his rebellion then he recaptured Devagiri and also exacted tributes from Hoyasalas and the Yadava vassals. While Bhallala wasn't happy giving the tributes, he showed no reluctance as he didn't want the Khilji army to stay put in Dwara Samudra. So he put up a face of submission and sent them away with the tributes. Alauddin Khilji was happy with Bhallala's conduct, released his son Veera Bhallala IV from his captivity in Delhi and sent him back to Dwara Samudra. It's recorded in inscriptions that it was on May 6, 1313 AD, the Crown Prince returned to the Hoyasala capital, and that a peace treaty between the Muslims of Delhi and Hoyasalas had concluded successfully. After this, Bahlala set about once again strengthening his kingdom and rebuilding the half-destroyed old capital, Dwara Samudra. And for the next three years, he was busy bringing the rebellious Hoyasala vassals back under his control, re-establishing his writ on them and expanding his frontiers. As of 1316 AD, life had returned to normal in the Hoyasala kingdom and prosperity had come back after devastating plunder by the Khiljis earlier. The 11 years that followed from here, we saw in detail the events that transpired in the eventual conquest of Yadavas, Kakatiyas, Pandyas and Kampili. We also saw in the previous episode how the Kampiladeva of Kampili sent Bahavutin Garshasp to the court of Bhallala in Dwarasamudra for safety before Kampiladeva fell down in the last stand against the Tughlaqs in 1328 AD. And Bhallala had rebelled against the Delhi Sultanate with the fall of Khiljis and the chaos that ensued in Deccan and South India, with many raising the banner of rebellion against the Tughlaqs. With this, we have come a full circle to the ending of the last episode, Ashes of Kampili. And with the background of Bhallala that we saw so far in this episode, we can better piece together Bhallala's motivations and resulting actions hereon. So with Bahaudin Garshasp being sent to Dwarasamudra for protection, Bhallala was now put in a difficult position. And we also saw in the last episode how Bhallala decides to not involve in Tughlaq family tussle. So he refuses protection to Garshasp and hands him over to the Tughlaq army. It is said that Bhallala didn't want to get into an unnecessary war with Tughlaqs and subject his people to the resulting destruction after years of rebuilding effort they had put in. Also, Bahlala didn't want to jeopardize his ability to fight back at the right time. And it made complete sense for him to not make the mistake of gambling his entire kingdom and future of his subjects away by trying to give asylum to Garshasp and his family like Kampiladeva had done earlier. While it might be tempting for us today to judge Bhallala for turning away an asylum seeker whose life was at risk, it's also important to remember that as a king to his subjects, it was also his dharma to ensure their safety and prosperity. While Bhallala and his kingdom were spared by this act, his rebuilt capital Dwarasamudra was once again sacked by the Tughlaqs. And after this, Dwarasamudra lost its political importance and the Hoyasala capital was permanently shifted to Arunasamudra or Tiruvannamalai. The losing of political importance of Dwarasamudra was directly due to Bhallala realizing that it was no longer tenable to hold Dwarasamudra against the Delhi Sultanate's forces that could easily march and lay siege against it even more so because the Yadava capital of Devagiri was now being used as a forward base for attacks into the south. It was with this realization that Balalā established new residences for himself, his important vassals and generals and his court nobility at strategic places across the entire south. As we saw in the previous episode, the fall of Pandya's Weakening of Hoyasalas after Tughlaq invasions eventually led to a dramatic coup by Tughlaq governor of Madurai to rebel against Tughlaq Sultanate and establish his own Madurai Sultanate as of 1335 AD. It was after this event that Balala realized that he had to change his strategy to fight against an Islamic menace down south. His earlier strategy of fighting it alone was no longer practical and carried immense risk of getting sandwiched between the Tughlaqs from up north and the hostile Madurai Sultanate from south. Therefore, Balala at this critical juncture played a political masterstroke by legitimising the holdings of the Hoyasala vassals and chieftains who had rebelled after Tughlaq's weakening of the Hoyasala ruling house. If you remember, this was a similar strategy that Tirumala Raya had played in the episode Tirumala vs. Tirumala. So by granting greater rights to his vassals, chieftains, generals and ministers, under the condition of not abusing those powers and acknowledging the overlordship of the royal house, Bhallala had won over many of the vassals and nobility back onto his side and made them much more receptive to his leadership. Bhallala went to the extent of foregoing a large share of royal revenue to keep them happy and faithful to him. From here, Bhallala assumed the role of a statesman, who became really busy in trying to convince the entire south to join his vision and cause for uprooting the Islamic invaders for good. It's worth mentioning that due to his active efforts to unite the south, Bhallala had delegated the administrative functions of the empire mainly to Ramaya Dhananayaka, Ballappa Dhananayaka, and few other chieftains. Here, the epigraphical evidence makes it clear that Ballappa Dhananayaka was a significant and powerful one. Ballappa was a nephew of Bhallala III and had previously won several distinctions with his service to the empire. This Ballappa, along with another character, that we shall see shortly, will become really important players who will play a crucial role in the foundation of Vijayanagara. And Bhallala also took to the task of establishing a new fort in Virupakshapura. This name is also known by other names such as Virupaksha Pattana Hosa Durga Hosa Veedu Veera Vijaya Virupaksha Pura Hosa Betta and Purupadai Veedu in Tamil This also points the ancient Virupaksha temple in that city. These names are none other than synonyms for what we today call as Hampi or Vijayanagara. There are inscriptions showing Bhallala alternating between Tiruvannamalai and Virupaksha Pattana in between 1330 to 1343 AD. While there is one other place called Hosadurga in Chitridurga district, the eminent historian, Reverend Henry Harris, had definitively concluded that the Hosadurga in this case was Hampi. It was supposedly named after Bhallala's son, Veera Virupaksha Bhallala, Are also known as Hampe Vodayar. Farishta refers to the city as Bijanagar, after he hears that the city was named after Bhallala's son. And there has been a history with Salas for naming some of their cities in their past by the prefix of Vijaya. So Farishta probably heard it as Bijaya and he hence called as Bijanagar. In the next episode, we will delve in depth on the origins of the name of the city. On a side note, it is important to bring to the attention of the listener that Bhallala undertook a campaign in the west coast against Hoyasala's powerful vassal, Alupas, who had rebelled earlier. Alupas were no ordinary vassals. The Alupa dynasty in Karnataka had thousand plus years of heritage Going back to pre-Kadamba age, their capital Barkur, which is in modern day Udupi district, was conquered by Bhallala in 1336 AD and he appointed his other son Kulasekhara, and Bhallala's minor queen of Alupan origin as co-rulers for this province. Bhallala had also subjugated some of the rebellious vassals in the regions of Tamil country that were outside the influence of Madurai Sultanate as of 1338 AD. Finally, in 1342 AD, after securing his northern frontiers and by maintaining the status quo with the Tughlaqs for now, he consolidated his hold on the south. Barlala then turned his attention to liberating Mabar provinces from the clutches of the genocidal and despotic Madurai Sultanate. Bahlala marched against the Madurai Sultan Giyasuddin Muhammad Damgani with a large army and defeated him in the Battle of Kandanur as we saw in the last episode. But Bahlala ends up being ambushed and captured after a clever ruse with the Kandanur Fort commander and ironically with this, Bahlala snatches defeat from the jaws of victory and his dead body ends up on the walls of Madurai. And such was the end of the last great monarch of Hoyasalas. With Balala's death, the once mighty Hoyasala empire had forever been extinguished. The eventual inauguration of the Vijayanagara empire under the Sangamas is a direct result of the sincere attempts for a final redemption by the last great Hoyasala. The blood of Ballala's sacrifice ran through the veins of the womb that carried the seeds of the glorious Vijayanagara. The last 15 to 20 years of Bahalala's life was indeed a story of realization and redemption. The realization of the Islamic thread, finally dawning on him and foreseeing the implosion of Hoyasalas, allowed Bahalala to make some pragmatic and tough choices that played a significant role as a catalyst to the emergence of a potent force like Vijayanagara some of the wise decisions and the grand strategy that Bhallala had put in place at least a decade before his death had ended up turning south india into a highly combustible tinderbox that was waiting for a few sparks to light them up and burned down the entire edifice of the Tughlaq Sultanate to ashes. With this, we will end the current episode in which we have finally set the stage for the rise of Sangamas. In the next episode, we will follow the two brothers Harihara and Bukka and we will see in depth how both of them forge the foundation of an empire from the fires of chaos and turbulence. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review. Reviews are really important as they give me valuable feedback and let me know what you like or do not. So please do leave a feedback and rating wherever it is that you are listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.